Listener discretion is advised. This episode contains depiction of extreme violence and sexual abuse. Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and always, I'd love to thank you for listening. I know I say it every time. I always thought that maybe I would record a few episodes, my family would listen, but every time I check my stats and I see that I have new listeners from around the world, I'm always so grateful. I'd like to say thank you to those listeners from Italy, Germany, Japan for coming back. I see we have some new listeners from France. I'm so excited to have you on here. Right now, I'm currently massively enthralled with Drag Race France. Um, I know there's so much more to your country, but that's what I am watching right now. So glad to have New Zealand back. Um, I'm watching Broken Wood Mysteries are catching up. I know it probably already aired out there. Uh, Romania, it's nice to have you. Liberia, it's so great to have you. Welcome, and I hope that you keep listening. If you want to request a crime, you go over to the Patreon. We do have a tier that allows you to request a crime. I'm always happy to hear from you guys. It's at Geek Flossie on Instagram and Twitter. So please, um, I'm open to any and all feedback, and I'm really, really happy to hear from you guys. So this week, we are looking into the Ant Hill Gang. They are a cult. I love doing cults because while they may be unique, they always follow a very, very, very clear um, type of uh, template, if you will. So in 2017, Psychology Today did an interview with a journalist about love bombing, described by her as a new phenomenon occurring in online dating. Love bombing is when someone showers you with attention, promising you the world, but when you respond, they then go cold and stop responding to you. But here's the thing, there's nothing new about love bombing. The term and the act has been around since the 1970s, but it's traditionally been described as a practice used by cults and religious organizations. And cults in specific, used it in relation to the indoctrination of new recruits. According to a number of different sources, the term love bombing was coined by the Unification Church of the United States, founded by Sung Mayan Moon, which is why its members were often referred to as the Moonies. A number of academics have written about love bombing within the cult movement. For instance, Thomas Robbins in 1984 issue of the Journal of Social Analysis noted, Many elements involved in controversies over alleged cultist brainwashing entail transvillennial conflicts related to alternative 
internal versus external perspectives. The display of afflictional toward new, potential converts, or love bombing, which might be interpreted as kindness or an idealistic manifestation of a devotee's belief that their relationship to spiritual truth and divine love enables them to radiate love and win others into their truth, is also commonly interpreted as a sinister or coercive technique. In a 2002 issue of the Journal of Human Relations, Dennis Torish and Ashley Pennington wrote that the practice of love bombing is derived from the interpersonal perception literature and is a form of integration, taken from Edward Jones's book, 1964 book of the same name. They then cite Jones's 1990 book, Interpersonal Perception. There's a little secret or surprise in the contention that we like people who agree with us, who say nice things about us, who seem to possess such positive attributes as warmth, understanding, and compassion, and who would go out of their way to do things for us. Torish again, and this time with Nahid Vaka in a 2000 issue of the Journal of Leadership, noted that cults use love bombing as an emotionally draining recruitment strategy and that it is a form of positive reinforcement. More specifically, they noted that cults make a great ceremony of showing individual consideration for their members. One of the most commonly cited cult recruitment techniques is generally known as love bombing. Perspective recruits are showered with attention, which expands to affection and then often grows into plausible simulations of love. This is the courtship phase of the recruitment ritual. The leader wishes to seduce the new recruit into the organization's embrace, slowly habituating them to its strange rituals and complex belief systems. At this early stage, resistance will be at its highest. Individual consideration is a perfect means to overcome it. By blurring the distinctions between personal relationships, theoretical constructs, and bizarre behaviors. More recently, the practice of love bombing has been used in other contexts, such as by gang leaders and pimps as a way of controlling their victims. This was outlined in a 2009 book, Gangs and Girls, Understanding Juvenile Prostitution by Michael Doreas and Patrice Corveau, and within this context of everyday dating and online dating. One article that has been cited a lot in the press relating to the use of love bombing in day-to-day relationships is a popular article written for Psychology Today by Dr. Dale Archer. He noted that notorious cult leaders Jim Jones, Charles Manchin, and David Koresh weaponized love bombing using it to con followers into committing mass suicide and even murders. Pimps and gang leaders use love bombing to encourage loyalty and obedience. Dr. Archer says that love bombing works because humans have a natural need to feel good about who they are, and often we can fill this need on our own. He says that there are times of high susceptibility to being love bombed, such as losing a job or going through a divorce. Irrespective as of why or where the susceptibility has arisen, Archer claims that love bombers are experts at detecting low self-esteem and exploiting it. He then goes on to claim that the paradox of love bombing is that people who use it aren't always seeking targets that broadcast insecurity for all to see. On the contrary, the love bomber is also insecure. 
So to boost their ego, the target must at least seem like a great catch. Maybe she's a beautiful woman who's lonely because her beauty intimidates people. Or maybe he's a guy with a great career whose wife just left him for his best friend. Or she's the hard-nosed businesswoman who's avoided marriage and motherhood because her childhood was traumatic. On paper, these people are attractive, but something makes them doubt their value. Along comes the love bomber to show them with affection and attention. The dopamine rush of this new romance is vastly more powerful than it would be if the target had a healthy self-esteem. Because the love bomber feels a need the target can't feel on their own. My own expertise on love bombing is limited to say the least. There's no evidence that love bombing is either addictive or compulsive. And it is simply a specific behavior that may be repetitive and habitual but is not something that would be done compulsively or is addictive. Now, my personal experience, I have been part of a religion that some people consider as a cult. It didn't last long. I like to say I didn't really drink the Kool-Aid. So very quickly, the cracks um, came through. Maybe about six months in, I recognized that I was being used because I was a person of color. Um, And that was when I chose to walk away and it was not very simple. I was not allowed to just walk away. Um, I did end up moving for my own reasons. And when I um, did move, I want to say maybe about a month after I moved to another state, I moved all the way across the country. Um, Their missionaries showed up on my doorstep trying to get me back in. So It was really scary, Um, just the idea that these individuals were so dead set on keeping me in a religion that I knew basically was bullshit, to be kind. Um, I don't know of any psychological research that has been done on love bombing in relation to dating specifically. But as noted above, the concept is not new and it has been in academic literature since the 1970s in relation to indoctrinating individuals into cults. Love bombing is a manipulative strategy to make individuals more emotionally pliable. My guess is that in relationship settings rather than cult settings, the individuals engaged in love bombing are likely to be egomaniacs or narcissists who like to feel dominant and powerful or love psychologically humiliating people. If love bombing is part of an individual's behavioral repertoire, there is no reason why they wouldn't do it with more than one person at the same time. I don't know of any research that has shown this to be the case, but it wouldn't surprise me if people were unfaithful love bombers. Yet, I'm sure there are definitely serial love bombers who go from one relationship to the next without being physical or emotional. There is a temptation to blame the behaviors like love bombing on the internet. However, My belief is the internet tends to facilitate pre-existing problematic behavior rather than cause it. It is well known that the internet has a disinhibiting effect on people and lower their psychological guard. In the case of relationships, the perceived anonymity of being online means that individuals reveal things about themselves, often very private things. Because the medium is not face-to-face, they don't feel threatened, they don't feel alienated, and they don't feel stigmatized. Individuals can develop deep emotional relationships online without even having to meet the other person because of its disinhibiting properties. 
Consequently, online methods of communication are another tool in a love bomber's armory. Initially, showering their professed love for someone and they can happen 24-7, something which couldn't have happened in the days prior to online ambiguity. There are also questions about whether love bombing intersects with sex addiction and love addiction. Personally, I see few, if any, overlaps between love bombing and sex addiction as they're two completely different constructs and have completely different underlying motivations with little in the way of crossover. Obviously, love bombing could be used as a method to increase the love likelihood of sex because flattery goes a very long way. However, if the ultimate goal is psychological control of another person's emotions, sex is simply a byproduct of love bombing rather than the main goal. As far as I can tell, there has never been any empirical research on love bombing in that aspect. So most of what I've told you here about that is speculation. However, I do think this is an area that would benefit from scientific investigation, given how important our interpersonal relationships are. At very least, such research might uncover the signs and strategies that love bombers typically use and might prevent a lot of emotional pain felt by stopping individuals from rushing headfirst into such relationships in the first place. Now, a moment with our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Roche Thoreau was born on May 16, 1947, in Saguenay, Quebec, Canada, into a French-Canadian family and raised in the Thetford Mines. His memoirs claim that his father would beat him so brutally as a child that it would cause scarring on his internal organs. 
However, as is the case with most cult leaders, Thoreau was a pathological liar, so it can be hard to tell exactly what his childhood was like. For example, his memoirs detail a time when he came across a bear in the woods. Per his account, the mother bear decided to take him in as one of her own cubs. He spent the entire afternoon living as a bear. While this tale is from a practice storyteller, Thoreau's upbringing has some certainties to it that may have planted the seed for his future sadism. His father, an avid member of the alt-right Catholic group, the White Berets, was known to make his children kick each other in the shins as hard as possible until one of them begged to stop. As a child, Thoreau was considered to be extremely intelligent, but dropped out of school in the seventh grade and began to teach himself the Old Testament of the Bible. He was convinced that a war between good and evil was about to come, and that this would bring the end of the world. Thus, he converted to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and lived by their rules. No tobacco, no unhealthy food, no alcohol, and no drugs. Thoreau was charismatic and good at persuading others to do his bidding. His time with the church, however, was short-lived. While organizing seminars for the Adventists, he convinced an entire group of people to quit their jobs and form his group, the Ant Hill Kids, so named for their ant-like work ethic. He was no longer Roche to the world. He was Moses. It was 1977, and Thoreau and his followers formed a commune that was free of sin and stood for equality and unity. Of course, just as with every other cult, the good times would quickly come to an end, which started when the Adventists kicked them out for their weird behavior. Thoreau forbid his followers to contact their families and against Adventist rules developed a drinking problem. Rules for the followers became stricter and stricter, up until the point where members were restricted from speaking to each other without Thoreau present. The Ant Hill kids made their living by selling baked goods. However, apart from the baking, Life within the commune was a nightmare. Thoreau started spying on his followers, and when some seemed not devoted enough, he would punish them. If a person wished to leave, Thoreau would become enraged. He would hit them with belts and even hammers. He would suspend them from the ceiling and pluck each and every hair from their body individually, and at times, he would even defecate on them. God, that's so gross. As well as... As well as the seminars decreased, Moses Thoreau became more and more convinced of his godly delusions. By the mid-1970s, Thoreau had convinced himself that he was the people's savior. He strongly believed he was put on this earth by God to save the world from evil and the upcoming apocalypse. Thoreau now had a new goal, to create a free-thinking commune where his accolades could listen to his teachings and live as equals. He forced his followers to abandon their homes and families after convincing them that the world and their loved ones were corrupt. Thoreau and his followers lived according to his personal representation of the Bible. They would accept him as their God. By 1978, Thoreau's delusions had grown exponentially, and he predicted the world would end in February of 1979. To prepare for this apocalypse, Thoreau and his followers four men, nine women, and four children moved to the Eternal Mountain, 
near the Gaspi village of St. Jogues, where the group built a commune of tents and cabins. However, February of 1979 came and went, and the apocalypse did not happen. According to Thoreau, the world did not end because of the difference in the Israelite calendar and the Roman Catholic calendar that God used. Yes, that's right. He told his followers that the world didn't end because God ran on a different timetable than humans. Soon enough, life in the commune became even more bizarre, if that's possible. Thoreau had wanted to increase his followers and decided to do so by marrying all of the women and impregnating them. He fathered 20 children by nine women. Thoreau also had a severely maniacal streak that triggered brutal punishments. You know about the things that he did when people tried to leave. Well, in 1981, he went after a child. This is graphic, so please be warned. He sliced open the penis of a two-year-old named Samuel after the boy had difficulty urinating. When Samuel wouldn't stop crying after the so-called surgery Thoreau ordered one of his followers, Guy Veer, to beat the young boy, and he subsequently died from his injuries. In a bid to conceal the death, the commune then set the boy's body on fire. As a punishment, Thoreau castrated Veer and ordered his followers to say that Veer had been trampled by a horse. Nevertheless, the truth came out, and the police raided the commune and discovered the charred remains of the poor child Samuel. Thoreau and eight others were arrested and charged with criminal negligence, causing bodily harm. They were eventually subsequently released. Following the release, Thoreau and his followers established a community near Burnt River, Ontario. Here, Thoreau ruled over his followers, including 26 children, most of who were his own. And his remaining followers, who somehow through all of this remained loyal. Here, his followers supported themselves by making maple syrup, preserves, bread, and smoking fish. While initially, the commune appeared to mesh with the community, Thoreau began drinking heavily, and his drinking increased. And with this, so did his violence. He exerted total control over his followers in extremely cruel ways, and they were weak, both physically and mentally, far too so to escape him. He forbid them from speaking to each other and conducted gladiator-style tournaments. During these tournaments, Thoreau would force his followers into a dirt ring and make them fight. He became increasingly paranoid that his followers were thinking of leaving and thus became more and more violent. Thoreau's first hint of all of this 
was when he started hitting the followers with belts and then, just like before, went to hammers and then went even further with axes. Thoreau even had his followers prove their loyalty by breaking their own legs, just like in misery with a sledgehammer. In addition, he ordered his followers to sit on lit stoves and even go so far as to shoot each other. And worst of all, I mean, if you consider this to be worse, cut off each other's toes. Thoreau then took to sexually abusing them. Even the children weren't exempt from the violence or sexual abuse. They would be stripped naked and whipped if one of them supposedly misbehaved. Thoreau even nailed one of them to a tree and forced the other children to throw rocks at them. Who thinks of these things? What kind of person comes up with something like this, especially to do to a child? Then, one evening during a blizzard, a mother, so terrified for her newborn child, decided it was best if she hid the baby outside, hoping that it would escape from Thoreau's violence. But as you probably guessed, the baby froze to death from the cold. This death, however, led to an investigation in 1987. 14 children were removed from the commune and placed into foster homes. While this should have ended the regime, children's aid were only interested in saving the children and not in seeking justice for the entire commune. So it continued with two men and eight women. Following the removal of the children, Thoreau became even more violent. While drunk, he believed he was a doctor who could perform medical acts. And one evening, he placed a rubber band around the testicles of a follower. His scrotum became swollen and infected after eight hours. And then, Thoreau removed the testicle and cauterized the wound with a hot iron. I'm trying very hard to remain as not upset or disturbed as I can, but this is really, really bothering me and disturbing me. So I'm trying not to let that show in my voice, but this is actually really disturbing me. Then in September of 1988, he ordered Solange Bouillard onto a kitchen table and stripped her naked. Earlier in the day, she had complained about a sore stomach. Thoreau punched Bouillard in the stomach and then, okay, I'm going to need a second. This is a little much. Then he shoved a plastic tube up her rectum and performed an enema 
of molasses and olive oil. That's awful. That's absolutely horrific. But it somehow gets worse. He then made an incision on the side of her abdomen. Oh, dear Lord. And then pulled out a section of her intestine with her with his bare hands. He then ripped a piece of the intestine out and stuffed, oh, why though, why? Stuffed the rest back in her abdomen. He then stitched her back up. Yes, she's gonna die of an infection. Oh, how, how? She remained alive and in agony until the next, yes, she did die. The next day when she died. Most likely because of digestive chemicals leaking into her abdominal cavity. That is what happens when you rip off a piece of the intestine and do not stitch it back up. Wow. I only know this because my father actually had his intestine burst and he had digestive fluid leaking into his body. So he almost died. Thoreau next claimed that he had the ability of resurrection. He ordered his followers to remove Bullyard's uterus and saw off a portion of her skull so that oh why though why oh why so he could ejaculate into her brain and bring her back to life however as you probably guessed this did not work Thoreau instead ordered his followers to bury her on the grounds of the commune but first, he removed one of her ribs and kept it in a case around his neck. Then, in November of 1988, another member of the commune, Gabrielle Lavalle, complained she had a toothache. Thoreau responded by ripping out a number of her teeth with pliers. Later that night, he chased her with a knife and cut a tendon out of one of her hands. Then, in July of 1989, Thoreau impaled her hand on a kitchen table after she complained of stiffness. He then decided he needed to amputate her arm. He grabbed a meat cleaver and hacked it off. She laid in agony on the kitchen floor until it was stitched up the following morning, probably getting a massive infection. On the 16th of August, somehow she managed to escape. She hitchhiked to a hospital north of Toronto and the disturbing truth finally came out. Thoreau pled guilty to three counts of aggravated assault and one count of unlawfully causing bodily harm. He received 12 years in prison. However, another member of the cult led the authorities to the body of Miss Bolliard. Thoreau subsequently pled guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Until 2000, in February of 2011, so these are concurrent sentences, meaning they're back to, consecutive sentences, meaning they're back to back. In February of 2011, because there is in fact a God, Thoreau was stabbed to death by his cellmate. Sorry, I don't say things like that often, but this is a man 
who deserved everything that he got. So that was the story of Roche Thoreau and the Ant Hill Gang. Now, join me next week when we are going to once again go into the story of a socialite gone wrong. This time we are going to look at another cult. This story is a little different. This is a socialite turned housewife who upon being coming bored decides to start a yoga cult. That's right. Yoga mom starts a yoga cult. So in the meantime, I hope that you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.